0: Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context.
1: Welcome back to the broadcast. This is Michael Easley in Context. And if you're following us in sequence, you know that we had the privilege of having Dr. Tom Schreiner on our broadcast for First Peter. And he has kindly agreed to help us walk through Second Peter. So without further uh, time, you can read his introduction in the show notes or the last podcast. But let's just go to work. Tom, thanks again for joining us to do another round with uh, Within Context. Uh, My pleasure, Michael. Great to be with you again. So let's jump right into Second Peter. A little bit of timestamps. This is obviously after the first one. It's a bit debated. We know he's probably martyred. What 67, 68 A.D. ish. What do you think?
2: Somewhere in there. Yes. It's because Nero somewhere in the late Nero's 60s, gone. Mid
1: to late sixties. Yeah. Nero uh, dies in sixty-eight. Right. So he had to have died before Nero right. died because Nero's so, the one who has that. him executed. Right. Okay. So he's an older man. That, and, that's right, that's right. And I think it's important to keep that in mind going through this second letter. It's perhaps the most debated from a New Testament author as to who wrote it, but I think you and I are on terra firma that we, we believe the, uh, Peter wrote the book, correct?
2: Yes, yes, and I and I think it's very clear. It's very difficult to deny Petrine authorship given, you know, Verses sixteen through eighteen, where he talks about the transfiguration and says, "We heard his voice and we saw him on the mountain. I mean, if that's not Peter, I think the author's deceiving the readers i mean I...
1: or he's really good at really good at counterfeit. <laughs> well, let's jump into chapter One and let me read a couple of verses here. Simon Peter, a bond servant. And apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of God and Savior, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted us everything pertaining to a life of godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Tom, I read those, and I mean that—that's in my worldview. That's about five sermons that I would preach on just those verses. There's so much going on in how he begins this letter, but I want to ask you precisely about this divine power that granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness. How do we a understand that as a Christian today? And B, how do we align ourselves with understanding you have all you need to live a life of faith? That's right, Michael. And Peter,
2: Peter doesn't start his letter the way we might write an email. Hi, how are you? He gets right into it, doesn't he? He just dives right in. Uh, even in verse 1, right, I, I take the word righteousness there to be the saving righteousness, given to us through, through God, the, the same kind of righteousness that Paul is talking about. And then we have grace and peace in verse 2, and then as you pointed out, everything required for life and godliness, verse 4, very great and precious promises. So uh, this is a lot like 1 Peter. Peter begins the letter by talking about the astonishing grace of God, the power of God that is ours because Peter's going to talk a lot in this letter about how we should live and how we shouldn't live. And so he doesn't want it to anyone to make the mistake of thinking that he's calling on his readers to live in their own strength. So he reminds them of the gospel. God's saving righteousness has invaded your life through Jesus Christ. Grace and peace is yours through Jesus. And everything required to live a life of godliness to the glory of God is ours through Christ. So when he calls them to live a virtuous life, and he will call them to live a virtuous life, he's not calling them to self-effort at the end of the day. He's not calling them to work out, to to accomplish their own salvation. God's already done that. God has saved them. God has delivered them, as he says in verse 4, They've escaped the corruption that's in the world because of these evil desire. They've already done that. They're saved. They belong to Christ. And, and that's gonna be important because in Second Peter, we have this group. They have left the church. They were teachers who belonged to the church. And now they've left the church and established a rival group, and they are false teachers. And they're not living in a godly way. So, and they're denying the second coming. So, this is a, this is quite a crisis in the community. We've got to remember these are new Christians. They've never they've never faced these things before. You know, we might say, well, if anybody in our church denied the second coming, we just say they're obviously wrong and move on. But this is a this is the first time they faced something like this. And so, these were beloved fellow church members who've left the community and established a rival church. And so I think Peter's fundamentally saying, you know they're false teachers, first of all, by the way they live.
1: So I want to push you just a little bit more. Help us understand we have everything pertaining to a life of godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us. I think you know. You you intimated about, you know, this isn't done in the flesh. A friend of mine, Dr. Jack Elwood, told me many years ago, because I'm kind of a disciplined guy. And he said, Michael, you can't make your flesh any better. And I've never forgotten that. And so this tension of living by faith, but, and you talked about a virtuous life, yet we have to, to obey. We have to do, we have, it's not just being, we've got to have some action that follows our faith. And, uh, I think a lot of Christians, Tom really wrestle with how do I live a righteous life? I can't do it in the flesh so help, help us a little bit more if you can.
2: Well, I'd say verse 3, he's given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through the, through the knowledge of God. How, how did we get everything required for life and godliness? It's through, through knowing God. I mean, w- these are hard things to describe, aren't they? What does it mean to be a Christian? I mean, I have family members who aren't believers. And if I say to them, I know God, they're, they're like, what are you talking about? I don't understand. That, that makes no sense to them. So there is, a, there is a dimension to what Peter is talking about that isn't, we can't, we can't put it in a test tube, right? Uh, yeah. we, what does it mean to be a Christian? As the great book by uh, J.I. Packer, it means we know God and when we know god we have everything we we need for life and godliness he he strengthens us every day but verse 5 for this reason make every effort to supplement your faith and then away he goes with goodness so yes. there is a it, it is hard to describe but he doesn't say Sit on your bed and and wait for God to zap you. <laughs> <laughs> Just wait in your room. He says, "Get going, act." I think I so the way I would say it is: we we act, we we choose, trusting that God is directing us, strengthening us. What is one way that shows that we're acting? as Christians, well, we we pray, right? We pray for God to strengthen us and to work out in us all that he's given us in, in Christ. So honestly, if, if, I mean, I'm happy to hear any pushback. I wouldn't worry if you're a believer, you're trusting in God, you're loving God, you're following the Lord, you're praying him to him. I wouldn't worry that much if, well, is this effort mine or God's? What is yours too? But if you're trusting God, I take it it's unless there's sin going on. I I take it it's from God. I wouldn't. I I don't think we should. I don't think we should unduly worry that. Oh, maybe that's from the flesh. Not if you're being kind and loving and generous. I mean, give the glory to God. God's done that in you. If you're disciplined, maybe you learn that. Partially from your family, i'm disciplined too i my dad, my dad had a huge impact in my life. I know one reason I'm disciplined is his his uh training of me but but at the same time, I give glory to God. Yes. I know in it myself i'm not disciplined i remember I remember what I was like as a little kid before my dad kind of got a hold of me <laughs> and uh yeah, I was pretty. I was pretty undisciplined. <laughs> so.
1: Now you mentioned in verse five, away he goes, and boy does he ever away he goes. Supply moral excellence, mm. and moral excellence knowledge, and knowledge self control, and self control perseverance, and perseverance godliness, and godliness brotherly kindness, and brotherly kindness love. And then I love this verse. If these qualities, and I, I, you're the grammarian more than me by far. I think the four if these qualities they're more of a sense sense, since these qualities are yours and increasing they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I remember writing in the margin of my Bible, Michael, you don't want to be useless or unfruitful. <laughs> you know. But but boy, this this cadence of terms, walk us through those a little bit, Tom.
2: Yes. Well, isn't it interesting that he begins with faith? So Galatians 5, 6, Paul says faith expresses itself in love. So faith is is the root of every other virtue. As we trust in God, we live different lives. So, you know, just a really simple example. If you trust God will provide your needs, then you're not going to steal, right? So all these virtues flow from faith. Isn't it interesting? He begins with faith, and he ends with, with with love. So there's clearly a climax there. I don't. Some people read these virtues as one building on the other, as a as a chain or a train. I don't. I don't read those that way. Right. I, I read them as just. This is a way of describing what the Christian life is like. I think this list is very similar to the fruit of the spirit. When the Spirit is working in us, you know, we have self control, but at the same time, we have love or gentleness and kindness and goodness, you know, whatever, joy, peace, whatever we want to talk about. And I think Peter is saying, this is what it means to be a Christian. And remember, these false teachers in the community, they're not living this way. So I think Peter's saying, God, God has poured his grace out upon you. What does it mean to be a Christian? Well, it means pursuing what's good, you know. Goodness, goodness is often not celebrated, even in in our Christian culture, enough. But you know, it's very hard to make a movie depicting goodness. Goodness is a hard thing to portray. I, I don't like all of his, of his theology, but I think the best and C.S. Lewis says it's the best uh, novelist of portraying goodness is uh, George MacDonald. His characters can describe what goodness is, but goodness without knowledge, I mean, you, you really, goodness and knowledge, you need knowledge to know what's good. And then uh, self-control, that's a fruit of the spirit as well, right? And right. enduring, being patient endurance, and being godly in our life, and then, and then having a brotherly affection for one another as as Christians. So obviously, we could talk about all of these a long time. But uh, what a wonderful description of the life of a Christian.
1: I appreciate your comment about the fruit of the spirit because this has been one of my pet peeves. Has been we we isolate the fruit. And we call them fruits, which is the first mistake. But the fruit, and I say the overarching principle of the fruit is love. And all those are explanations of love. Love is is like these things. And you intimated the same thing here. He begins with faith, which is, okay, if you're a faithful man or woman of Christ, you're going to be concerned about your moral excellence, your goodness, your knowledge. And, and it seems, and I appreciate your comment earlier, too, about not worrying too much about parsing the motive. Cindy and I have this ongoing collegial debate that there's no such thing as a pure motive. And she maintains there is, and I maintain there isn't. So we have a lot of fun with that because I just, maybe the way we're, you know, raised or wired, or whatever is like, am I really doing this for the right reason? We'll just do it. <laughs> you know. And sometimes I think some of us maybe like me are overly critical of self. And, you know, those are other things subjects to talk about, but I, I appreciate your observations and they're 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 kind of a good index. Am I kind? Am I using self-control? Am I and, and that's a good encouragement to say if you live in faith, pay attention to these things. Well let let's move on. Go go continuing in chapter one of Second Peter, he talks about, you know, I mentioned the useless or unfruitful. You won't be useless or unfruitful if these qualities are yours. And then he transitions, verse 9, for he who lacks these qualities is blind, short-sighted, therefore, and then he says, therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. You've already mentioned that th- these aren't ways to measure our salvation or faith. Those are my words of your, of your explanation. So help, help us, Tom, when he says, make certain about your calling and choosing you, because this is a big issue among scholars and commentators.
2: Yes, I, I take this to be to confirm your calling and election. I don't think he's saying earn your calling and election. Calling an election, that's what God does. God saves us. He calls us. He elects us. He saves us. But the fruit in our life, is an evidence of our calling and election and it it confirms that we truly belong to God again not because I have this conversation so many times not perfection you know we're not talking about someone being perfect but I do think Peter is saying look if there's no change in your life if you're not living in a in a way that pleases Christ that's somehow discernible, then, then there, there are questions about whether you belong to the Lord. So when he says, because if you do these things, you will never stumble, I understand that to mean if you do these things, you will never fall away. I don't think stumble means there you will never sin. I think he's saying you, you will never fall away. That is, you will, you will verse 11, you will be brought into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.
1: But you know, again, I think it's a reminder, and, and he, he even says, verse 12, therefore I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them. I, when I taught this at our church, I, I made the comment that good Christian teaching is ongoing re-education, because in the main, especially if you've grown up around a good Bible teaching or a good church, maybe going to Bible college or seminary, you know these things, but we need to be reminded. And we also see, I I would think, you can correct me, he's near death. He knows, in fact, verse 14, it seems like Christ told him he's going to die soon. And so he's, look, boy, before I go, I'm going to remind you, remind you, remind you, remind you of these things. Because why? We forget. Absolutely. I, I mean,
2: I, that is just right on. That's the very, you, you've you really summed up well the next paragraph. Peter's about to die. He knows his time on earth is short. So what is he, he wants to stir them up by a reminder. When I was in seminary, we had this older gentleman, I suppose I'm about his age now, but he'd walk around <laughs> the park. And I remember my wife, my wife talking to him and he, and she said to him, do you read the Bible? And he said, oh, I did that once. <laughs> he said, I did that once. And especially those of us who've been Christians for a long time, I don't hear new things in sermons anymore. Yeah. And probably if I hear a new thing, it's probably wrong. <laughs> but but we all need to be reminded and stirred up. We need We need those reminders in our lives, and we need to be stirred up. And that's that's why we continue to fellowship with other believers, go to church, we're in small groups, we read the Bible, we pray. We need that, we need that stirring up until, until we die.
1: You, you're commenting about something new and being old in the faith, and I think, it's, I think it cuts two ways. One, uh, something new or novel we're going to be suspicious of, but secondly, if we're not encouraged uh, and, and, and see things maybe we've missed or forgotten. I had a friend, Mo Proctor, preach for us a few weeks ago on Joshua nine, and I, I use this program called Logos. You might use something like it. And he was showing a new feature in some of the grammar analysis and the word about uh, meditate on it day and night. And he made the comment, that word doesn't mean think about it. That word literally means to mutter. To talk about it, to might use the word muse on it, and I thought, what? A, and I had not, I had never seen that before, Tom. And so it wasn't new and novel like some trend, but it was a new appreciation for a passage that we love dearly, and said, and and think about the ramifications if we're talking about what we're studying. We're reinforcing it in our own spiritual life, and we're sharing it with other people. And I'm sure you have friends like this. Maybe you're the, you're the one in the group when you get together. You're the one that asks the questions. What's God teaching you right now? What are you learning in the scripture? You know, what, 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 whatever. You know, I, I read this this morning in Second in Peter, and I was so blown away. I don't want to be useless or unfruitful. And that keeps the economy of the spiritual life growing in the body, right? That's what he's doing. I keep reminding you
2: absolutely absolutely yeah and when i say that we don't learn a new th- new things i mean new doctrines but w- certainly we we never get to the end of the riches of god's word there's always right. there's always more nuggets nuggets there that we haven't seen
1: you mentioned earlier about the transfiguration and i, I want to get to this in chapter 116 he talks about we were eyewitnesses of his majesty and then he talks about verse 17, when we received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance was made to him by the majestic glory. Such an interesting designation for God. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mount. And we go back to I go back to both the baptism in Mark uh, Matthew three seventeen, for example, and transfiguration, because all of voice, and we talked about this earlier. The Trinitarian doctrines are there implicit in the texts, but interesting to me that he he reminds himself, and you got to wonder, as an old man thinking back on his life, that transfiguration was some kind of experience.
2: Yeah, I mean they had no idea it was coming. And you go up on the mountain, just Peter, James, and John, and I think the function of the account here in Second Peter, remember from chapter three they're they're doubting the second coming, and for Peter, the transfiguration is well the way I like to put it, the transfiguration is a movie trailer of the second coming.
1: Wow, right?
2: You know we all That's like to great. watch trailers of movies, but Peter's saying. You know, we got a little trailer there. <laughs> we saw him in all his glory. We had a sneak preview, you know, of what is to come. And it's going to be amazing. And, and he says, do you doubt the second coming? I've seen, I've seen the trailer.
1: <laughs> I've seen the
2: sneak preview. I've, se- I've, I've seen what's coming. There's no doubt about it. I heard it. I saw it. My friends saw it with me. He He's coming. He's coming.
1: I love it. That's great. That's quotable. Let's move toward the end. Know this first of all, no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit from God. And we, uh, we've we all heard some pretty great sermons or maybe some fanciful sermons about moved by the Spirit of God. Help me out. Well,
2: what what beautiful verses these are on the doctrine of Scripture. And we, we see here that the words of Scripture were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I think a common illustration is, so to speak, the the wind of the Spirit fills our sails, and, 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 and people are inspired by the Spirit. At the same time, he says men spoke from God. So we see this in Paul's letters, right? His personality, his literary style... His uh, his way of thinking is manifested. We don't have dictation from God. God doesn't say to Paul, okay, Paul, write Paul, the apostle. Okay, now Paul writes to the Galatians. No, Paul <laughs> writes out of his own mind, yet, yet he was carried along by the Holy Spirit. So we say Scripture is hundred percent human. It's it's human words, and it's hundred percent divine. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit, and therefore, as evangelicals, we gladly say Scripture is authoritative. It's infallible. What does infallible mean? It cannot fail. It's inerrant. It's wholly true. It is there. Are, there, are, in the intended meaning of the authors, there is no. There are no mistakes. So. Peter, Peter's saying to the readers, trust God's word. And, and by the way, in this letter, God's word promises Jesus is coming again. That, because that's the big thing in this letter. Jesus is, if, if you don't believe history, because I think these false teachers said, you know, history is just going to continue the way it always has. So, they're you know, it's, it's hard to understand fully what they believed, but... If you don't believe Jesus is coming again, what you're not a believer in Christ.
1: But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you. So when he talks about prophecy and that being, you know, inerrant, infallible, uh, you know, inspired by God to these people to write, to the men to write. Now he says, in contrast, but false prophets, and they were around before and they're coming around again, even denying the master who bought them. Many will follow their own sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. Their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Now, I read these, and I don't want to name names, but I just think of so much stuff, prosperity theology stuff, and the name it and claim it, and sort of this you know showy Christianity with no substance and a lot of panache. It just breaks my heart that so many people fill up these auditoriums, Tom, and they're deceived and captivated by it. Give us your sense of why is it so seductive? Why are people so easily pulled into these? Fall- and he says clearly, it's going to happen. It happened in the past. It's going to happen in the future. But you, you know, you have to be aware of these things.
2: yes. I mean, I would just pick out two things here, which you really already mentioned, but I mean, what does he say? They'll, they'll exploit you uh, with their greed, and you'll, you'll follow their sensuality. Two, two key marks of false teaching, they're not the only marks, but two key marks of false teaching in the New Testament are sexual sin and, and greed. And yeah, we we could name names. We've been around long enough. We could name names that have been very prominent, and they fell into both of these, right? Well, I mean, obviously, n- there's no excuse for sexual sin. But David sinned sexually and repented, and came back to the Lord. But these false teachers are not are not repenting. They're giving themselves to their own lusts and desires, and they're living for their own comfort and they exploit others so they they have a greater responsibility since they're teachers of course those who follow them are also responsible because they follow them because they kind of want the same things they they find these teachers attractive because these teachers offer something that appeals to them now it's it's not wrong it's not wrong right to to have money or to be comfortable. We live in the richest country in the history of the world, and I'm th- we're thankful for that. But, this is, but what motivates them is greed at the end of the day. Right. And, and, and of course, that's not all. He, uh, I don't know if you wanna get into the other verses later, but they're very, uh, you know, to pick up what people used to say, they've had self-assertiveness training to the max. You know they—they they don't care what anybody else thinks. They—they're—they're they're confident. I mean, they—they're they're not. Nobody can tell them what's right. They're totally sure they're right, and—and and I think that's one way false teachers can trap people because, you know, we all have insecurities and we wonder about things, and then then this teacher comes along and oh, he's totally. He has no, he doesn't seem to have any doubts. <laughs> he's, he's full of confidence. He has every answer.
1: How do we help people, Tom? And you have to deal with seminary students and I have to, you know, hopefully encourage folks who are growing in Christ. How do we help them? Cause on the one hand, we don't want to quote name names and be critical and be, you know, arrogant and, you know, this person can't be a Christian because he or she is teaching you, you notice the. Two points. I, I use the illustration of money, sex, and power. That those three umbrellas, lust of the flesh, lust of the uh, the most part of life. Uh, go back to the garden. That those three umbrellas encompass every sin in some way. And when you see these enamoring, powerful, successful men and women who are out there, you know, peddling wares, and you know, if, if you weigh in and say, you know, folks, um, you need to be discerning this is not right. This is false teaching. If you come out hard and swinging, then you're an idiot and you're regaled to the, to, you know, so it's, it's not just, I'm not worried about my reputation. I'm worried about how do you encourage people not to be deceived or deluded without coming off high-handed or arrogant yourself in, uh, correcting false teaching.
2: Mm, mm. No, I think that's an excellent question. I do think from the, I mean, if you're in a local church, I think and, and I sometimes have named false teachers. Not a lot. I mean, I don't think that's a good practice to do very often. But I have named some and I think if they know you, you've been with them and week in, week out, they know your character. They know you're not they know you're not just attacking people to attack people. I mean that you obviously it's a concern if your ministry every week is you're just attacking others. And but if that's not what you're them, doing, right, right and if, you know, your ministry is mainly one of criticizing others, then that's a problem. But I think, I think if you're regularly expositing scripture and you say, look, this cha- that's what this chapter is about. This is not my idea. I, I'm just preaching through this book and, and this book is here. God put these chapters like this in here because he loves us and we need to be warned about people who can lead us astray. And Jesus himself said, by their fruits you shall know them. And I think it's so interesting. Of course, doctrine is very important, and I wouldn't want to minimize that for a moment. But actually, the Bible emphasizes more, and that doctrine, doctrine, I'm not stepping away from doctrine, but this chapter emphasizes more behavior. By their fruits especially how do they live? And I think Peter is saying, watch their lives. And and that means, yeah, you might, I'm not going to name the false teacher just because we're on a program, but I had a friend right. from Japan, a person I think both you and I would say was a false teacher. He, he wrote me and said, Hey, this guy's coming to Japan. And he was one of my, he was a Japanese student I had at Bethel and he's pastoring over there, a faithful, godly pastor. And he said, I've never heard of this guy. And I just sent him an article from Christianity Today, which uh, rightly showed the dangers of his ministry. And he's, he wrote me and said, Well, thank you so much. So, you know, sometimes it takes a little work because if you've never heard of a person before. And right. by the way, I, I was very surprised. This teacher was very popular amongst Christians in Japan, which was quite distressing. Yeah. You know, we we need to, so we need to be alert and we need to, we need to know the lives of these people. And some of them, this person I'm thinking of in particular, I mean, he takes these offerings and he lives, he buys the most expensive cars and lives, uh, with the clothes he wears and it's really well known how he lives. Uh, even a lot of secular people would not regard him, but Christians can be taken in, and so so we're right. warned by their fruits. I mean, I th- I think you could summarize Second Peter chapter two by their fruits. You will know them. what, are, what is the fruit of these people? They, like you said, money, sex, and power. That's what that's what marks these people. They're, they're clearly living for themselves.
1: Chapter 2, verses 4 to 9 is one long sentence in our Greek text. And I always love when, of course, for our listeners, most folks know who read and say the Bible that our punctuation and verse numbers are all added to aid the English reader. They're not in the uh, original languages. They're not in the Masoretic text or the Septuagint or the Corne Greek, but it helps us. But when we come to these long run-ons that, you know, the the nuns who trained me would have graded me down for a run-on like this, Tom. But when I read this long sentence, he's covering angels, the world, Noah, Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot, and then he has this intriguing comment at the end The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Whoa! I mean, there's so much in those verses, Tom. Uh, And and yet, when I taught this book a few weeks back at our church, I said, this is a hard book. This might be the hardest book you ever hear me preach. But God is a God of judgment. And he's going to judge as he did in the past. He's going to judge in the future. People don't like to hear these things. So, give us some of your observations and insights on this long sentence.
2: Yes, yes. I mean, very good on the structure. We have an if-then sentence, three examples of judgment, right, and then two examples of God's preservation. So, the the punchline is in verse 9, as you pointed out. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. So... Yes, Peter says, the wicked, these wicked false teachers, they will be judged. Look at history. God judges the unrighteous. And secondly, he will preserve the righteous. And I find this so fascinating, even in the most difficult situations. Noah lived in the world where there were; it was only his family. He had no one else. To encourage him, and Lot, you know, when we read Genesis eighteen, uh, and not just Genesis eighteen, when we read Genesis, Lot had his problems. But yes. I always say to students, I say, look, Peter compliments Lot here, and I say, before you jump too hard on Lot, you tell me if you live in a world where there's nobody but you who's following the Lord, not your wife, not your kids not your sons-in-law. Lot was by himself. And Peter says, Lot was not perfect, but Lot loved the Lord. And every day he had to live in an environment with no other Christians. I, I say this when I teach this, because I teach this a lot. I It's usually my students. And I say, look, there's 50 Christians in this classroom right now. You know? But lot had no one. and And, 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 and so... Let's not, let's not beat up on him too hard. You know, yes, he had his faults. But Peter's saying, God can keep you. And maybe we feel this way more and more in our society. God can keep you in a society, in a world that is turning upside down. And, that, and so that's a great comfort, I think. God's, God's, everything's going to be put to the right. You know, there's a lot of things wrong, but but God is going to sustain you. He, if He could sustain Noah and He can and He sustained Lot, He's gonna He's gonna sustain you in the midst of this.
1: He continues in this same unsavory subject, and the language is so poignant. Verse ten: Those who indulge in the flesh corrupt desires, despise authority. We're back to the authority we talked about in, in First Peter. Daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties, Um, whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. They're like unreasoning animals. Born as creatures of instinct, captured to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge. This is hard stuff. And if we say this in our culture today, you're being judgmental, and you know you're being intolerant. You're not being loving. We we've redefined and worshipped these words love and tolerance, and way beyond what their what their fields of meaning means. Eyes full of adultery, never ceasing from sin. I I, I get depressed reading it, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, we could say, to use a, a
2: larger word, they're clearly antinomians. They're against the law. They, okay. don't, they don't even try to do what's right. They, they probably argued that it doesn't matter how we live. Whatever we want to do is right. I, I think that's what they'd say. I think there's more and more people in our culture who believe that. I think, you know, life changes from generation to generation, but I think if our, my great-grandparents came on the scene today to the United States and God's doing some great things here, but I think they'd say these verses fit pretty well.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes.
2: This, now I think they'd be shocked at a lot of things happening yes. in our culture. Well, I mean, we live in it and we get used to it, but it is loving to tell the truth. You know, some people think, well, this is unloving, but love tells the truth about what's going on in the world.
1: Yeah. Well, and if we love, we want to call people to repentance. I think that's the other thing that's hard for some, uh, especially our younger Christians. They They don't like the tension of speaking the truth in love. And it's, well, if you love somebody, you say, you know, that's, that's not what God wants for you. That's sinful. I, I think we can temper the way we say things, but at the end of the day, we have to say truth. And well, I'm going to ask you again, Doctor Triner, wrap up Second Peter for us. What are two or three things we really need to take away and and learn and listen from our dying friend, uh, the Apostle Peter?
2: Well, I let me just say a couple things. What about these false teachers? Did Did they lose their salvation, some people ask. And I would say, Peter says, no, their nature never changed. They were dogs and pigs from the beginning, which means unclean animals in Jewish culture. So they haven't been changed. So Peter, then Peter tells us, so you have chapter one, chapter one, God's given you all grace, live a godly life chapter two, watch out for the false teachers chapter three. look for, expect, hope for the second coming of Jesus. Life on earth, it's wonderful in many ways, but it's not it's not heaven on earth. It's not the new creation that's coming. There's a new world coming. Jesus is coming again. and I think Peter is say, saying, count on it. And Peter's saying, Does it seem like a long time? One day with the Lord is as a thousand years. So I always say to my students, to God, it's it's like two days. Two days, you know, we all remember Saturday. That wasn't too long ago. So two days have passed. Jesus is coming. And how does he end the letter? He ends the letter, therefore, live a godly life, right? Verse 14, make every effort to be found without spot or blemish in his sight. Hang on until the end. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, So, which is a great ending to the letter, isn't it? Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus yes. Christ. That's, what, what does that mean, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Jesus Christ? Well, it means to, that we live in a godly way. We follow those virtues we saw at the beginning. Such, you know, it's like chapter 1 and chapter 3 are a nice little envelope, right? You know, uh, with chapter 2, here's the danger in the middle. Chapter 1 and 3, here's here's how God wants us to live in a godly way, a way that pleases Him.
1: I, I love, and you pointed it out already in verse 18. I, I love the connection, verse 17. Be on guard, verse 18, but grow in the grace. And and to me, and you've said it beautifully, but uh, to me, you know, if I remember God's word, I, I need to always be on guard because unfortunately so much creep, I use the fr- phrase frog in the kettle all the time in, a, in our church We're frogs in the kettle and we just don't see the temperature rising and all of a sudden we're in trouble and to grow in grace. And, mm. and i written literally in the margin of my Bible, MJE, are you growing? Because I think it's one of the dangers for those of us who've known Christ a long time is we live on our theological laurels. We live on what we knew in the past and we've heard that. And you know, show me something new in Second Peter or whatever, as opposed to are you in the Word daily? Are you growing? And God willing, you and I will grow until the day we we die, right, Tom? Amen. Amen. May it be so doctor Thomas Schreiner, who is professor at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, he is the James Harrison Buchanan Professor of New Testament Interpretation. If you've enjoyed these two interviews with Tom, I wanna encourage you again as we began, take a look online, just search for Tom's books. I love his I've got I think I have all your commentaries Tom, but I spent a lot of time I taught through Romans many years ago and uh, Tom's commentary on Romans was was one of the standouts and I uh, so love and appreciate your work again. Thank you for your labors, for your hard academic rigors, all the study you go through to uh, help people like me. You, You give us a huge jump start on things that we don't have the time or maybe the ability to learn the way you do. So thanks for using your gifts and skills to help the body of Christ, Tom. Love and appreciate you, sir.
2: Thank you so much, Michael. It's been a pleasure and delight to be with you today.
0: Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonamorphic, and music composed by Chad Cates and Blair Masters.